Second Kings 5. Let me read the account of the healing of Naaman. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man to send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out of to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Pharpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman was captain of the host of the Syrian army, a man of distinction, a successful general, in good favor with King Benedad, his chest must have been covered with medals and bars and stars and decorations. But along with all the assets, there was one terrible liability. He was a leper. That loathsome, incurable disease meant a terminal illness. And every time he took off his uniform at night and looked at his decaying body, all the glory departed. There wasn't a slave in Syria who would have exchanged skins with him. 
Now, leprosy in the Bible is a type of sin. Physical leprosy is a figure for leprosy of the soul. And today there are Naamans everywhere. Some are people of distinction, cultured, prominent, successful, and important, but dying with leprosy of the soul. And the country is full of pagans, and some of them are church members, religious, but sinners in the sight of God. And the only cure for leprosy of the soul is the blood of Jesus Christ, and they've never availed themselves of that. And in these days when sin is being called arrested development and biological growing pains and error of mortal mind, modern demons are not worried much about sins. But the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sinneth it shall die. I like the way this story progresses. There was a little maid in the home of Naaman who had been brought a captive from Israel. And she said, oh, if the master could only get in touch with the prophet in Israel. Now, sometimes great events turn on the testimony of a very humble, inconspicuous witness. Mrs. Woodrow Wilson, the second wife of the president, who, as you remember, married him during his presidency after the death of the first Mrs. Wilson, tells how that on the day of their marriage, as she and the president were going out of her home to enter the new life together, the old black cook that was loved so much in her household said, Now, honey, take Jesus for your doctor and for your friend. And she said, Mrs. Wilson said, I've often thought since if I had done that, the new life could have been more enriched for myself and more useful to others. One good word from the right person is like a pebble dropped into a pond that undulates over to the farther shore. It must have been a good maid because what she said impressed her mistress she must have been living right. And the mistress told General Naaman, and they told King Benedad. The king said, well, it's worth a try. So they organized a caravan of servants and a lot of money, some think as much as $100,000, other gifts. And with all the impressive entourage, Naaman started out to find Elisha. That's the way this whole world does things like that. Tries to get up something big to impress God. God's not impressed by big generals and a lot of money and a retinue of servants. His gifts are not for sale, although Simon the sorcerer tried it. But Peter said, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought the gift of God might be purchased with money. When a man starts out to do business with God, he's in for a big surprise. You soon find out that the Almighty doesn't operate like we do. Naaman found it out. Elisha didn't even come out to meet him. Just sent word, go and dip seven times in Jordan. Now that wasn't uh, uh, discourtesy, wasn't that? Elisha didn't mean to be discourteous. But a work of God was about to be done, and Elisha wanted to stay in the background. He wanted to make it perfectly evident that he wasn't doing it. You see, we preachers like to get in on the act when something important happens. But Elisha 
regarded Naaman not as a great general who happened to be a leper, but as a leper who happened to be a great general. You say there's no difference? There's a lot of difference. The thing that moved Elisha was not the dignity of Naaman, but his disease. Those old prophets were not awed by important folks. Old Elijah stood before Ahab, you remember, and said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. I'm in the habit of standing in the presence of God Almighty, and you're my dear small potatoes after that. You've heard Dr. Hill, that great black preacher from California, tell about that, how Elijah said, Mr. Ahab, it ain't going to rain no more till I say so. Well, that's a pretty good weapon. And that's uh, that's a wonderful uh, trait of a real prophet. He's not awed by the presence of the great around here. God deals with us as sinners. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. In sin did our mothers conceive us. Our pedigree, our status are not important. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble have been called. There are four kinds of people who aren't going to heaven in big numbers. We might as well accept it. Jesus said there wouldn't be many rich people there, comparatively. Now, a rich man can get to heaven just like anybody else if he gets saved, but in order to be a Christian, he's got to be poor in spirit. <laughs> it's really hard to be rich in money and poor in spirit. Some folks have a lot of trouble along that line. I wouldn't know, but that's what I, I hear. And then Paul added to the list. He said, not many wise. That's the intellectuals, trying to get through head first instead of heart first. The only thing I know of that's got its head and heart in the same place is cabbage, and you're no cabbage. You don't get through that way. And then uh, the mighty. How many presidents of the United States can you think of that you believe were New Testament, spirit-filled Christians? A little discouraging sometimes. Some, yes, I think, definitely, some. When William McKinley lay dying after his assassination, his doctor said, up until now, I always thought a man couldn't be a Christian, be a politician. But he said, I've had to change my mind. That's a good testimony for a man to be. And then the noble, the blue bloods, whose ancestors came over on the Mayflower or something. and never get tired of telling about it the rest of their days. Ancestry. Trouble with ancestor business is it's like potatoes, the best part's usually under the ground. And uh, so they were very proud of their status. I'm glad it says, uh, it doesn't say not any, but it says not many. Not many. Just as I am. Well, what am I? I'm a sinner in the sight of God. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I'm coming to the cross poor, weak, and blind. The gospel doesn't kowtow to the high and mighty. It respects people of position, of course, in a uh, proper way, but we don't uh, uh, reverence them unduly. Old Peter Cartwright, that great pioneer preacher, back in the days when you really had to be rugged, he was preaching, and President Andrew Jackson showed up in the crowd. And ordinarily, that would have upset any preacher, I guess, and they brought word up to him, to Peter Carter. I said, the president, she had the president. 
He said if he doesn't repent, he'll go to hell just like anybody else. Now, that may not be the proper way to deal with the famous characters, and they show up, but even Mr. Moody. In one of his meetings, President Grant showed up. And uh, Mr. Moody knew about it, and he did not mean to uh, overlook him. But he was so wrapped up in preaching the gospel and getting people saved that he clean forgot the president was there. Now, he oughtn't have forgotten it, but yet I can't help admiring a man who can get so carried away with preaching the gospel and getting people saved. He forgets everything else. Daniel Webster was one of our great statesmen in Washington. And he used to go out in the country to hear a country preacher instead of going to some of the big churches in Washington. Somebody said, why, why do you do that? Well, he said in Washington they preached to Daniel Webster the statesman. But this man out in the country preaches to Daniel Webster the sinner. And he said, I need it. There ought to be more of that. Well, here's Naaman standing before the place where Elisha resided, and Elisha said, go deep in Jordan. And Naaman got mad. He said, behold, I thought. A lot of people are going to hell over something they thought. They're thinking their way to hell with their own kind of thought. Human pride keeps many a man from salvation. A lot of churches won't have revival. They're too good. They don't need one, they think. Rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Uh, so Naaman got mad. Who does he think I am? And who does he think he is? Dip in Jordan, that muddy little creek. And it's not much more than that. Those of you who have been there, it's nothing to brag about. Jordan is a river. said, we've got good rivers in Damascus, Abana and Farpa. Uh, the world today doesn't like to dip in Jordan. It's not a big enough river to sue them. Uh, and uh, Naaman said, now, if I'm going to dip in any river, he ought to have picked out an elegant one where I could keep my prestige and my position while I'm doing it. It's a perfect picture of this poor, sick world today and all its grandiose efforts to find a cure. It's rather amusing, this story. These two kings, Syria and Israel, sent a message to the king of Israel and said, now, I'm sending this man to get cured. <laughs> Of course, that uh, put that king into a tizzy, and he said, Am I God to heal people? He's up to something. And today the rulers of this earth are changing notes, and they're doing a lot of it tonight with Iran and what have you on their mind. And they stage elaborate conferences with pomp and ceremony, and uh, they send Naaman from one end of the line with all kinds of protocols, and uh, all the VIPs of this earth can do is to rend their clothes like the king of Israel and say, am I God to make alive? We don't know what to do with this kind of situation. In the midst of all this excitement, old Elisha kept cool. He kept his cool, as we say today, and sent word to him and said, keep your shirt on. Just, just calm down now. I happen to be in touch with heaven. I got a hotline to headquarters. Hey, let him come to me and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. I like that. And right here is where we preachers sometimes miss our opportunity. Our leaders today are tearing their hair and rending their garments. They're at wit's end over the fix we're in. The leprosy of this generation, we've never had such an outbreak as we have now. 
these unbelievable things, like Diana, and today I watch for a few moments uh, a whole hour devoted to this uh, man that has killed ever so many people and put their bodies in the house and all sorts of queer places. Uh, you, you, you can't think things like that could happen, but they are right among us. And the experts and the specialists hold seminars and uh, we have everybody holding a symposium today. I get so tired of these symposiums. You know what a symposium is? It's where we pool our ignorance. And we never had more symposiums. We got today to get together for another symposium. What are we going to do about our social problems? Our financial problems? What? That poor old dollar. We used to say you're sound as a dollar. You'd be about ready to die if you were in that condition. <laughs> the breakdown of morals and billions on armaments and drugs and pornography and homosexuality and teenage suicide. They led, they set a record last year, teenagers, for suicide. And I didn't know the other day that suicide is the primary cause of the death of medical students. And I asked my doctor the other day, he said, that's right, two in my class killed themselves. It's a strange and a weird time. But let us ministers especially not be nervous and shaken like everybody else. Let's keep our cool. Not, not in the proper sense you understand. Let's keep our cool. Let's be calm and collected in the sight of God. And tell these folks that, now you do what God says. It wasn't what Elisha said. I'm speaking for God. Do what God says and you will know that there's a God in Israel and that there's a prophet in Israel. Some of us are wringing our hands and, like everybody else, worrying about the, what the world's coming to instead of preaching what has come to the world in Jesus Christ. Tell them to go dip in Jordan. Abner won't do it. Farper won't do it. Intellectualism won't do it. Scientific know-how won't do it. The philosophies of this world won't do it. Education won't do it. Environmentalism won't do it. The rivers of Samaria won't do it, but bless God, there's balm in Gilead, and there's healing in Jordan, and there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That'll do it. And some of them won't like that any more than Naaman did that prescription. And there are people today who say, you mean to tell me that in this day of atomic power, when we've gone to the moon and we're all that smart, we still have to believe like our granddads and grandmothers did? Yes, I do. Nothing important has changed. Heaven's just as precious, hell's just as hot, sin's just as black, eternity's just as long, salvation's just as free. And uh, I'm not wearing myself out going up and down the country preaching an easy religion. Old Jeroboam II tried that. He said, we're going to put up an altar up here. You won't have to go way down there to Jerusalem. It'll make it easy. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. And we're telling people today, now let's get a new, a new easy brand of Christianity so you won't have to go to Jerusalem. It won't cost you anything. Salvation's free, but discipleship will cost you every blessed thing you've got. And the sooner we find that out, the better it'll be with all of us. So there he went, finally, and he must have felt silly in all his pride. And he got out there in the water, in that muddy creek, as he called it, and his companions, the boys who went with him on this trip, were watching him. 
one time, two times, three, four, five, six, down and up, down and up. And every time he came up, he looked just like he did when he went down. And I imagine some of the boys said, General, I believe you've been taken in this time. But you do it the way God says do it, and it'll work out that seventh time. Bless the Lord. Came up with flesh like a little child on that last trip. It's complete obedience that brings the blessing. It's not three-fourths obedience or two-thirds obedience. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm talking about complete obedience. That's, that's possible. Sometimes it's embarrassing. But have you noticed that this blessing, like so many others in the Bible, <clears throat> was conditioned on obedience? Now, I believe salvation's free, and I believe in the grace of God, a free grace, but we must tie it in every time with obedience because the Bible does. Trust and obey. The coinage of God, like our coinage, has two sides. You never saw a quarter in your life with only one side. Every truth in the Word of God is two-sided. Not contradictory, but has two sides. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility. You say, I can't understand that. I don't either. I don't have to understand it. That's the way it is. Trust and obey. Jesus Savior, Jesus Lord. The believer, the disciple. Positive, negative. Everything's got that other side. And the other side of faith and trust is obedience. And God always ties in obedience. You say you're preaching works? Yes. In the same way that James did. Paul preached grace and James preached works, and yet they both preached both. But... Uh, I'm glad we have both books in the Bible because works is the other side of this as James made very clear. You have it all the way through the Bible. When Jesus sent that blind man after he put mud on his eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam. Now Jesus could have healed him without sending him on all that trip to Siloam. Elisha could have healed Naaman without getting him out there in that muddy creek as Naaman called it. There was no virtue in the waters of Jordan. But it was a matter of obedience, and Naaman was stubborn, and he needed to be willing to do what God said to do. And when Jesus uh, spoke to this uh, blind man, put the mud on his eyes. In the first case, it was Jordan. In the second case, it was Siloam. Now you go and wash it off. Have you ever thought about that fellow going downtown, what he must have looked like? Mud all over his face trying to find his way, still blind. Some of his old cronies said, well, I was afraid it'd come to this. What is he up to now? They went up to him and said, what is the matter with you? said, I met Jesus. He put mud on my eyes. Told me to go to the pool of Siloam and I'm on my way. And they said, you really think there's anything like that? And he said, he said it. And I'm going on my way, and I'm going to get there. And you know what happened. So God may send you on a trip that will seem absolutely crazy sometimes. Think about old Philip after that big meeting in Samaria. It wasn't a revival. I've always heard about that great revival in Samaria. Well, it wasn't a revival. Everybody over there was dead in trespasses and sins. There wasn't anything to revive. He went over there, and folks got saved. But after that great evangelistic campaign... God didn't say, now, you did pretty well that time. Now, we're going to send you to a bigger place next time. We're going to promote you. God said, you take that desert road and head off right away. And I can see old Philip going down that road saying, well, now, this I don't understand. 
I thought I was getting to be a famous evangelist. And here I am on this desert road, and only the Lord knows where I'm going. And sometimes God will do that to you. Jesus said, He that keepeth my commandments, he it is that loveth me. But nobody wants to obey today. Obedience is out of date and out of style, whether it be in the home or the school or the church or wherever. Nobody wants to obey. And Charles G. Finney, who was perhaps the greatest revivalist of all church history, gave the best definition of revival I've ever heard. He said, Revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. Now, there's nothing Hollywood about that, you know. You can't get worked up in a lather over that kind of a, a definition. But that's what it is. When God's people begin obeying God, you have a revival. That's what the book says. An unsurrendered will will get you into all kinds of trouble. As I said, Elisha could have touched and healed Naaman right old. Jesus could have healed the blind man. Sometimes I go to Peoria, Illinois, to a great Presbyterian church there with Bruce Dunn. You hear him over the uh, radio. He's heard all over the country. Great preacher in a great church. Bruce said he didn't get saved for some years because he just didn't believe in going down the aisle. And they required him to come, make a public confession. He said, I don't believe in that. And said he put it off and put it off because he was so stubborn. Said finally God got him under such conviction that he said, Lord, I'll turn somersaults down that aisle if it'll get me saved. And he got saved right away. Not by coming down the aisle, but by giving in to God and getting victory over that old stubborn will. The principle on which the grace of God operates is so utterly foreign and incomprehensible to the natural man, and most folks today belong to the natural man, the old Adam crowd, that they can't receive it. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, can't take them in. They are moronic to him. That's what the word means there. You get moron from that. The world says it's moronic, the foolishness of God. Sin doesn't have any place in his vocabulary. He resents being called a sinner. And as I said yesterday, lost, that word lost is a lost word today. You never hear parents saying, my boy's lost, my daughter's lost. But Jesus came to seek and to save him and gave us three parables about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost boy. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Uh, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. I don't understand some of these marvelous things. I don't understand about all things working together for good. It does not say we understand that all things work together. It doesn't say we, we understand how they work together for good. It says we know they do. How do we know? Because God said so. Now, you may not feel like it. You may say, Lord, I can't make a bit of sense out of this that's happening to me. Now, it's not good. And what does it mean? But that's what God says, and that's all we know about it. I don't understand how an airplane can get off the ground, get way up there, thousands of feet in the air, and take me on to the next place. I don't like to fly. I love the train, but I don't like flying, but I have to get anywhere. I don't know how the thing operates. But I get in there and I commit myself to it, and it takes me where I'm going. I don't understand how a black cow can eat green grass and give white milk. 
But that doesn't keep me from enjoying ice cream. You just watch me next time. And so I enjoy the provisions of the grace of God. And the whole thing must be wrapped up in simple, unquestioning obedience, something that modern man's not used to hearing about. But you can't be happy in Jesus unless you trust and obey. That's simple. It's not simplistic, but it is simple. It's not childish, but it's childlike. There's a big difference, except you be converted and become as little children. Not childish. Jesus had another passage about that, children playing in the marketplace. But a revival is when childish church members become childlike. If that ever happens, you've had a revival. There isn't any use starting out toward God with our uniforms and our letters of recommendation and money like Naaman did. Eternal life's the gift of God. If he could have paid for it, it wouldn't have been a gift. The grace of God reduces everybody to one or two categories, lost or saved, sinner or saint. The ground's level at the foot of the cross, and when we're willing to dip in Jordan at God's command, we'll come up the seventh time with the flesh of a little child. And of such, there are two keys to the kingdom. Jesus gave us those two keys. Except you be converted, become as little children. Conversion and childlikeness. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Naaman's little servant girl was right. The blind man headed for the pool of Siloam was right. Philip out in the desert was right. Mrs. Woodrow Wilson's old cook was right. And if there's anybody listening to me tonight who can't get humble enough to go in this wicked gate, this wicked gate, that everybody else has to to enter, then God doesn't have any special gate for you. God doesn't keep some special entrance for the intelligentsia and the literati and the VIPs and the blue bloods. He hasn't got Abin and Farper over here for them, so it'll spare them embarrassment. You can't tell God how it's to be done. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, and F-E-W-F-U. There be the time. That ought to cure us of statisticitis. Few there be. And that old S and N, that straight and narrow, has never been broadened. And that road's never been widened, and it doesn't get any wider further up the road. It stays that way to heaven. I advise you tonight, if you're listening to me now, swallow your pride if you're not right, and go deep in Jordan.